Welcome to Ojibwe Stories, Gaganone Dida. Today we are privileged to be sitting with Roxanne DeLille, Dean of Indigenous and Academic Affairs at Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College, and Valerie Shangro, the Director of Leadership Programs at the Blandon Foundation. Today, Valerie and Roxanne will be sharing with us some of their stories, thoughts, and wisdom about leadership and the development of good leadership skills in Indian communities here in Minnesota, as well as helping us get a feel for the big picture of where the field has been and and where it's going. So we're uh, very privileged to welcome these ladies to our show here today. Thank you. And wanted to invite each of you just to share a little bit about where you come from and how uh, your journey has led you to where you are now. Hmm. Bonjour. In this English language, my home is Bad River, Wisconsin. I was born there, but I was raised in Milwaukee primarily, and then back and forth between Milwaukee and a little bitty village in Michigan. Both places, however, had very few indigenous people that I grew up with, so I grew up pretty much in an urban area and then a very small community with no Indian people at all. Interestingly, though, it is now a Potawatomi reservation. Well, I'm originally from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. I grew up on the reservation. I am the daughter of a Native father and British mother. My father was stationed in England in World War II, and that's where he met and married my mother. My two oldest sisters were actually born in England, and when the war was over, she came over on a troop ship that was converted for war brides. And then she and my father lived way out in a little community called Slim Buttes. That's our Tioshpaye, where our family was. Then moved into town, into the Pine Ridge Village, and that's where I grew up. Thank you both for coming here today and being willing to talk a little bit about this big field of leadership that each of you are well-known in, uh, well-respected in, and, and work very diligently in. But to um, begin our conversation today, if you could describe for our listenership what it is that leadership means to you. Hmm. Boy, it's such a big topic, huh? I mean, I, I think of where leadership was for me and where it is now. Where it was for me is it was always something unattainable. I never saw myself in that way. I always saw it as political or positional. I always saw leadership as those people. Um, I never really recognized until many years later, I would say within the last maybe 15 years, my idea of leadership has shifted considerably. I now look back and I recognize that even as the oldest of my family, that I had a leadership role very early in life. I just never saw it that way. I never thought of it that way. Even now, when I think about the way in which I do leadership, you do what you do. There you go. That's it. And that's how I think of leadership now. I'm not someone who sits back. I'm not someone who lets others do the work. I'm not afraid to do the work. And so I guess that's how I think about leadership now. I think about leadership as those that get in there to do the work, those that will do whatever it takes to get the job done, those who are not so much afraid of of stepping into that role because it just is something that they casually do. That's pretty much the way I do it. Thank you so much, Roxanne. Valerie, any parallel thoughts or other thoughts you'd like to add to helping us understand this big concept of leadership? Well, like Roxanne, I don't think I ever really thought about myself as a leader. 
I just did what I felt and saw needed to be done. I was always getting involved in something. On the reservation, I saw the need for an Al-Anon group and got some women together and we started one. I saw the need for safe places for women to go, got a group of women together. We started a chain of safe houses. So I guess I always just looked at it as doing what needed to be done. But in my journey, as I think about leadership, and I've thought about it a lot, and now in my position, and I am a leader of a team, to me, leadership is bringing the best out of the people you work mm. with. Yeah. And I often describe my leadership as leading from the middle. And I really nurture my team and want them to be the best that they can be. I, I see that as that's my job, mm-hmm. is to care about them, not just as people who work for me, but as human beings. And if I'm not attending to them as whole human beings, then I'm not doing my job. Mm-hmm. And I've never been a out front kind of leader. It's kind of funny because when I first went to the foundation, one of the people that is on my team, it took him a few years to tell me, but he said, you know, when you first came on board, I really didn't know that you had anything to offer me as a leader because I didn't understand your style. Mm -hmm. And he said, now when I see where we have come, he said, I just want to thank you. And Mm -hmm. it took him a few years to get there because he just didn't recognize my leadership style. Wow, what a wonderful affirmation. Yeah. (laughs) It did suggest to me over the course of such careers that you've had, uh, you've met, um, sure, a tremendous number of people in Indian country and, and beyond, I was curious if there were any leaders that you had met or worked with that had perhaps in a special way inspired each of you. And if you could just tell us a little bit about who those people were and how they helped you become who you are today. Sure. So there's been many, many. And it started at home, you know, with my mom and dad. They put such a high value on education. And for all of us, it was not if you go to college, it was when. And so we were always inspired to do our best, to believe in ourselves. And more than that, not just ourselves, but to believe in our people and to know that we came from a proud people and to hold our heads up. So it started at home. And then I guess my first story would be about a Native woman who was faculty at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. It was Teresa LaFromboise. And when I was there as an undergrad, she asked me to work with her. She had a grant and took me on, and she mentored me. She was probably one of the first real mentors in that way, and she taught me so much. In fact, it was she who asked me, have you ever considered graduate school? And I hadn't because I didn't know what it was. My dad finished high school. My mom didn't even finish high school. Nobody had been to college except my older siblings had been to technical or trade schools. One sister got a bachelor's degree. But nobody in our house ever talked about graduate education. I don't think we even knew what it was. And she encouraged me to do that. She said, you can do it. You can handle it. Um, She helped me and showed me how to apply, showed me where to go, you know, to seek funding to help me go to school. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here. Wow. We never quite know where we'll run into those mentors and Mm -hmm. what phase of our life. But for you, that was this post-secondary education experience. Yeah. She certainly was. Oh, I've had so many mentors. Another mentor for me was a former boss, Sid Bean, who's also a Native man. He really taught me the love of working with community. He was a community organizer. He was the director of the Indian Center in Lincoln, Nebraska, but by training he was a community organizer. And watching him, I learned a lot, and I learned love of working with community from him. 
sounds like you did some very important work and I think the kind of work that Indian country revolves around in, in so many ways and in so many places. Mm -hmm. um, Roxanne, I can't help but imagine, even knowing some of the people that you've had the privilege of knowing in your life, mm -hmm. if there are any particular leaders that stand out who've inspired you to come to the place where you are today. Oh my goodness. I, I guess the place where you are today is kind of the tickle point for me. I don't see, you know, I don't see where I am as any place momentous, <laughs> to be honest. And I, and I think that's kind of how I've always thought about it. I don't, a lot of the things that are so relevant and so key in my life, I never recognized while I was in it. Like Valerie, it's, it's teachers. I, I think of a teacher back when I was in, in elementary school, Mrs. Doms. And you know, I've looked for her. I've gone back many years looking for her because she saw at the time what I thought was an obnoxious little Indian girl and recognized in me something that I never believed. She kept telling me that I was a good writer, and she told me that I had a great imagination, and she told me that the way I put words to paper was just beautiful. And, you know, she actually convinced me. She really had me believing her. That was a key thing for me later. So it was later that I would recognize it, because at the time, like I say, it didn't resonate as anything momentous. I spent a good portion of my life doing things that maybe I shouldn't have been doing. And it wasn't until I actually turned my life around that I began to recognize some of the really important people in my life. I come across a woman early in my recovery. I've been in recovery now for almost 30 years. But early in my recovery, I had the very good fortune of meeting Alison Beauvert, who came to be one of my wetlands later. Alison Beauvert, she worked for Catholic Charities, and she was one of the regional directors for Catholic Charities. An amazing, amazingly brilliant woman. But what always stood out to me about her was that there was never anyone who stepped into her space that didn't leave her space feeling valued, empowered. They felt as if she just loved the ground that they walked on. You never left her space feeling in any way diminished after having spent time with her. She made everyone feel that way. She made everyone feel like they were her most cherished person. And I really, really valued that about her. More so, she really pushed me, too, at the same time. She was a tough little cookie. Man, she was tough. She worked down on Franklin Avenue and got me a job on Franklin Avenue, and I worked at the branch on Franklin in Minneapolis. And... Um, Boy, I tell you, she was just persistent, tenacious, determined, and kind, and generous, and capable, and allowed others to step up front. In fact, encouraged them to be in front, and, and yet was not afraid to take the lead in anything she did. So yeah, she was a, a key, key person in my life. She was the one who encouraged me to get back into school. She said, well, why don't you go back to school? Oh, God, Auntie, I can't do that. Sure you can. She was the one that nudged me to get next to my culture. Well, what is your name? Well, geez, Auntie, I don't know. I never found it. Well, go. why don't you do that? You know, she really encouraged me that way, which led me to Porky White. Uncle Porky, holy smokes, talk about a, a leader. He did so many things, and yet he was so casual about the way he did things. He would sit down at a card table of, of a bunch of street people and make them all feel valued and have a good time laughing and joking and teasing with them. Very down to earth. Between these two people, they provided the backbone for me of what it is to be a community leader. 
Never once did they place themselves above. Never once did they act as if they were better or in any way hold some kind of position over you. Instead, they worked right next to you. They um, were hardworking to the very end. I mean, oh, my goodness, Uncle Porky had to be one of the hardest working old men I ever met. I thought, holy moly. Never shrugged his job, never turned down tobacco. When someone ever brought him anything, he was always there to do the work. Um, Auntie Al, the same thing. You know, so I would say if there were key mentors in my life, those are the two foundational mentors. And in the mentors that each of you have talked about, we see so many things. I think there were so many good things in common that you each affirmed. There was this kindness and this dedication to the people mm. and community and this willingness. If ever anything needed to be done, they would do it um, almost, dare I say, without being asked. I, mm -hmm. I think that's one of the mm -hmm. things that's pretty common in our indigenous community leaders is that recognition, but that vigilance to what needs to be done for the people and when and and not needing permission to do it, just doing it. So mm -hmm. there's that special level of commitment there. And I think one of the things that really shines through in the stories that each of you told there was that incredible sense of humility, not to put yourself above someone else mm -hmm. and, and leave that brightness in everybody's life. Um, it's actually very much the way I see both of you actually being <laughs> just bright, shining, helpful people who are very kind, incredibly dedicated to the people, but extremely humble, um, despite the great accomplishments that each of you have. And looking across different systems of leadership, you know, there are those systems in the world where people would probably just talk about those things in a platform elevating kind of way, you know, having a PhD or being the director or a dean, that those would automatically elevate you to some position of authority. But it just seems as, as you have talked today, and it reminds us about the special nature of leadership in Indian country and how at its best and its most authentic traditional forms, it is all of those things that our, our key values describe us to be as kind and gentle and soft-spoken people who stand together and stand with and help. So thank you for sharing those with us today. Mm. I know also working today as we do in contemporary society and institutions and in organizations that serve the community broadly. Um, we often know that we have to do things a little differently just to make sure we reach everybody as best we can. But I, I'm curious too if you could reflect on any special philosophies from Indian country. Could be from the Lakota people or the Ojibwe people or maybe another nation of people. Anything in traditional belief and practice that has been something you have endeavored to incorporate in the work that you do every day? Hmm. Boy, for me, immediately what comes to mind is um, to be diligent and yet to proceed with caution. Mm -hmm. And that word for me became so pertinent in my life at a couple different really important places. But not only to continue going but to not hurry myself, to not feel as if I have to get there really quick. I came into this really late in life. I didn't go back to school until I was in my 30s. And so I didn't really recognize my own capacity until I was in my late 30s, early 40s. And so I felt like I was behind the gun, like I came in late and I needed to catch up. And for a little bit there, I felt like I, I needed to hurry, hurry, hurry. And Uncle Porky just kept telling me, <laughs> well, I want us to go, you know, slow down, um, take your time, don't worry, be diligent. 
be cautious, don't hurry into anything. Instead, um, be thoughtful, be considerate, consider your, your work that you're doing. You know, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And then um, how are you going to do it? And yet he had some simple philosophies. I'll never forget getting my pipe. And I went to him and I said, well, Uncle, how do I do this? He said, well, you put your tobacco in it, you light it, and you smoke it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he had such a beautiful way of making things simplistic and yet diligent. Just do it. Put your tobacco in there, you light it. You smoke it. Okay. <laughs> so, so for me, I, I guess it's, I um, think, be diligent and, and yet be cautious. Mm-hmm. So a good message you would extend to our listenership is that Ayangwamazig mm-hmm. to be determined, mm-hmm. but be careful mm-hmm. in how they proceed. Um, I also just love you sharing that from Porky White, that notion of weiwene sago, that idea of doing just things in a really good way. Mm-hmm. So... Special word there. Thank you for that Mm -hmm. so much. Um, For me, I guess I would say the one driving thing would be giving back. When I was 18 and getting ready to go off to college, one of my cousins sat down with me and he said, do you know it's okay that you're going to leave the res and go off to college for a while? He said, but um, never forget your people. And then he said, you know, Valerie, there's two kinds of Indians in this world. He said, there's those that go off and do what they do to better themselves. And there's those that go off and do what they do to better their people. Hmm. Never forget your people. Mm-hmm. And so now at this stage of my life and my career, I'm motivated by giving back. And that's how I lead is by giving and, and generosity, by giving generously, giving generously of my time, my self my heart, whatever it is people need to help them grow into the best person they can be. Again, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for a lot of people who were very generous, mostly with their time and their wisdom and their relationship, but also, you know, helping me move ahead, encouraging me, get that degree, get it done. All those kinds of different things that pushed me to keep going. Now it's my turn. And I've felt like that for quite a while now. And where I see, I can, I help. I give back. Such an important message and beautiful philosophy to help guide your path, oh, that idea of, of giving back. Um, thank you so much for that. And I'm just curious, too, now today, as you have you know, reflected upon some of those people and some of those experiences and some of those philosophies that have guided each of you to the place where you are today, how you're able to balance these competing realities that we have today to encourage systems of leadership, which maybe are not inherently ours in indigenous systems, but yet you know, still be able to bring out the best of our traditional values and ways um, in the leadership work that we're doing in communities now. I guess um, when I think about the kind of work I do right now, as the Dean of Indigenous and Academic Affairs at Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College, um, I got that position because of um, what I started to call guerrilla warfare. Hmm. And my colleague, Sonny Peacock, that just drove him crazy. He hated that term. <laughs> but, it, but it was the nudging, it was the pushing, and it was the, the doing things and then asking for forgiveness if I was called on it. But I saw so many things that needed to happen. And I immediately think of, at UMD here, they have quite a large international student population, and there's a number of international students that come for very specific classes. And so Mike Sonnefrank 
contacted me one year and he asked me how I would feel about welcoming his class of international students. And I said, oh, I think that would be a great idea. And again, another one of these crazy little things, just a crumb that the creator left that later on I, I recognized what was coming from it. But got off the phone with him and then it hit me. But a great idea. And I got a hold of a number of the Ojibwe students on campus and I said, would you come help me to welcome these students to Anishinaabe King? And so we then sat down and we thought about what does that mean to welcome people to our land? How should we do this? How should we go about this? And we had this great conversation about what does that mean? And you had to see what happened to these students as they puffed and started to fill themselves with recognizing, one, they should be doing this, and two, that they had the right to do this. Okay? So we did a little feast for them. We did pipe. Um, we had a drum there. We made them dance. We had, you know, had a lot of fun with them. <laughs> and uh, it became an annual event. And so now every year, sometimes twice a year, uh, Mike and Mr. Goey will bring their class to Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College, and we welcome them to Anishinaabe King. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it was that guerrilla warfare. It was the simple little things of pushing and nudging when we started to recognize the relevance of indigenous education on campus. We pulled all those courses that we had together, and we housed them under one program, Debajamawanan. Mm-hmm. And then we nudged again because we're a state and tribal college. At the state level, we nudged to change the name of the program. We didn't want it called American Indian Studies. We wanted it called Debajamawanan. And they said, but then we can't transfer it. And I said, well, okay, then put it in parens, the American Indian Studies oh, program. Okay. <laughs> but let Debajamawanan come in the lead. We had a little bit of pushback for it, but... Um, that's the name of our program now, Debajamawanan. Wow, very powerful to give a program an indigenous language name first. First, that's right, that's right. And so little things, I could give you a whole bunch of stories, but those are two of mm-hmm. what are clearly just guerrilla warfare. Slide it in, mm-hmm. keep moving, keep nudging, but mostly to help fill ourselves up with the knowledge that we have the right to do that, mm-hmm. you know. And could you describe just for us Debajmoanun, mm. um, what that is or what those are? Mm-hmm. It's really telling our story. Mm-hmm. So all of the classes, they are about American Indian studies, mm-hmm. but it's from our view about what does that mean. It's our view of history. Mm-hmm. It's our view um, from an Ojibwe perspective, what um, the American Indian people did when we think of, for instance, even treaties and treaty rights from the perspective of an Ojibwe person. So we try to flip it. So every class is infused with very specific standards that have to be met that are Ojibwe in nature. Yeah. So telling our story. I love it. Uh, thank you for um, helping us understand the significance of that word, debajmoanun, as mm-hmm. being those stories that come from the people themselves, of the people, of mm-hmm. this land. and. Mm-hmm. Even just that whole process you described for us of working with other allies um, to, in some ways, empower our own knowledge and systems of leadership, getting those young people engaged and involved in uh, this wonderful, proactive way. And special shout out to, to a couple of our UMD professors there, Professor mm-hmm. Goy and Suna Frank, who obviously have been a big part of that Absolutely. work that you've done. So yeah. very good. Um, 
Valerie, any thoughts that you would like to share? I know you work in that. You have that similar role where you're working in an organization that serves all communities and all peoples, but yet we know that your work is still so passionately rooted in who you are in the indigenous philosophies and traditions of the Ojibwe people of Minnesota and the Dakota people, but also your own Lakota people. Yeah, I think early on I learned to be really, really true to myself and who I was and to not necessarily bring myself into the room or as far as, you know, into another culture, but to bring them into mine. (laughs) Uh And I've tried to always operate out of my values. Mm -hmm. And I have been in situations where I got in a lot of trouble for that. You know, um, I've been in situations where putting my family first was not seen as a good thing. Mm -hmm. I've taken my lumps. I will tell you that. (laughs) Um, And and that's okay. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot. I have taken some significant lumps, Mm -hmm. but I've always tried to remain true to myself. You know, in one situation, I can remember calling another mentor almost in tears because I was brought to a particular place of work because of my diversity and then got in trouble because of my diversity and called up a person who I knew could talk to me. And here's what he said, suck it up and don't (laughs) let them run you off. Mm -hmm. And that was the hardest thing I ever had to do. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted him to say, oh, you're right. You're a poor thing. You can leave. (laughs) You you can (laughs) just quit. I wouldn't blame you one bit. He said, suck it up and don't let them run you off. And that's what I did. And I stayed until I could leave in a good way. Now where I'm at now, I feel very, very fortunate because I work in an organization that has a culture that allows me to be who I am. Mm -hmm. And there were people who were like, okay, when is she going to step out? And when is she going to be that sort of upfront leader? And I would look at them and say, I'm not. (laughs) That's not who I am. Or I will when I'm ready. Or I will when I need to. But I've been very, very fortunate in that I work in a really good culture and with a lot of people who maybe they didn't understand at first, but took a leap of faith with me and hung in there with me and got to know me and always laugh. And I say, my staff gets American Indian 101 (laughs) (laughs) regularly, whether they want it or not. But I just have tried to be who I am and operate out of that. And now I'm in a good place where that's okay. But Believe me, I've gotten knocked around for doing so. Mm-hmm. Some pretty uh, incredible stories of adaptability and resilience. And <laughs> in some ways, I couldn't help but mm-hmm. think, as you said that, you know, suck it up and don't let them drive you out. It'd be a great name for this episode. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, we're, we're <clears throat> deeply appreciative to both of you for sharing a little bit about the places that you've been and the people who have helped make each of you who you are today. And for sharing a little bit of that truly important work you do for Indian country and helping us develop good, strong leaders for the future. So thank you both for that. Mm. Roxanne DeLille, Dean of Indigenous and Academic Affairs at Fond du Lac Tribal and Community College, and Valerie Shangro, the Director of Leadership Programs with the Blandin Foundation. Thank you so much, ladies. Bidamaya, miigwech. Bidamaya. Thank you, Brian. Bidamaya.
This is Gaga Nonidida, Ojibwe Stories. Our host today is Brian McInnes, Associate Professor at the College of Education and Human Service Professions at UMD. To listen again to past episodes of Ojibwe Stories, click on the Programs tab at kumd.org. Funding provided in part by the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council and by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Oh, 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 oh,